preach in Jesus' name this morning. It's good to be here and fellowship with you. I was again reminded as Brother Tim was reading there of um, some of what was talked about in our Sunday school lesson, at least in the men's class. The response of the Shunammite woman and then also I gathered the basic same response of the man he was reading about. Um, her response was, it is well. Even though she knew that her son was gone, um, she was accepting of God's will in that situation. And even though this father recognized there was a situation there with his son that was out of his control, I still gathered that he uh, had a sense of peace about it that I believe only comes through knowing Christ. So again, I was challenged by that thought, Am I, can I be that same way and accepting of whatever God has for me? It's not my subject this morning, <clears throat> but anyway, um, this morning I've chosen to uh, look at a subject that I've entitled, Remove Not the Ancient Landmarks. Proverbs 22, verse 28 says, Remove not the ancient landmark which thy fathers have set. And I looked there in Proverbs to see if there was some surrounding verses that would, but it's kind of like Proverbs is, you know, just a, just a thought that comes out and then he moves on to something else. But as I think about landmarks, um, we think about things that we see around that are important or useful. You know, before we had GPS or our cell phones, nowadays we just tell somebody, here's my address, punch it in, it'll take you there. And most of the time, you'll get fairly close. Uh, but before that, we would give directions like, you know, go down Highway 25, <clears throat> we're going to the Wagon Barn Market. When you get down X number of miles, watch for a, uh, a wagon and the sign there in front of the... Uh, place of business. If you want to get to Tim's place, you turn in just before that, go back the lane and so forth. We give those directions. There were landmarks that we look at, um, trees, buildings, whatever it might be. Look for those landmarks. But you know, if you're gone from an area for a while and you were given directions to go back there, maybe there's something that's changed. For instance, if I was to give directions to someone that's been in our area 20 years ago and told them to go down, uh, they're coming from Waynesboro, or maybe they're coming from Mellon, whatever, they're coming to my house, tell them to go down Story Mill, or not Story Mill, but Herndon Road, um, about so many miles, and then, you know, they would have thought there's a big pecan tree, pecan orchard there to the right, that pecan orchard, there's a crossroads, take a right and come back there two miles to my place. That's what they would have thought, but those pecan orchards are not there anymore. You don't even recognize the same area. Um, it's completely different. The landscape has changed. It's all uh, cleared out now, and there's fields and pivots sitting in there where those pecan orchards are at. We can easily get waylaid and, and uh, not and lose our way because the landmarks we were familiar with are not there anymore. Some of them really don't, just like those trees, wouldn't really have much significance. But what about some things in our lives that are God's 
and landmarks that keep us in the straight and narrow way. Those of you that own land, or maybe even if you rent a piece of property, you know and probably can take me and find the uh, corner stakes and about where the tree line is here or the creek back there or whatever landmarks it might be, here's a corner marker that marks the corner of my property. And uh, you kind of have that in your mind. You know about where stuff's at. Now, I've, I've been around our property uh, lines enough that I know in about where I found all of our corner markers at one point in time. <clears throat> but there was one corner marker on the backside of my property that uh, the other property owner next to me decided he was going to clear up some of the land. And he wasn't paying close enough attention and knocked out the uh, corner marker that was clearly there. It was by mistake. And, uh, but there's a, I brought it to his attention, and well, we could go survey it and find exactly where that's supposed to be because you see in our uh, records in town, here in Richmond County or Burke County, there would be records kept that says exactly from this point to this point, so many feet, there's where the corner marker should be. Um, I was like, oh, we don't need to worry about that. I'm not worried about, I know it about where it was. I know it's in behind where this tree is. We actually left a tree growing there in the corner of my property. Um, it's in the way, but it's there because just to kind of give us a general idea that there's a property corner there in the corner. <clears throat> Turn in your Bibles to Joshua 4. I'd like to read a few verses here. We can see here uh, in, this, in this passage, Joshua setting up a memorial, a landmark um, for the people and the reason that he did it. Joshua chapter 4, I'd like to read the first uh, nine verses. And it came to pass when all the people were clean passed over Jordan that the Lord spake unto Joshua, saying, and this is just right after they had passed in, uh, over Jordan into the promised land on their way from Egypt. Take you twelve men out of the tribe, out of the people, out of every tribe a man, and command ye them, saying, Take you hence out of the midst of Jordan, out of the place where the priest's feet stood firm, twelve stones, and ye shall carry them over with you, and leave them in the lodging place where ye shall lodge this night. Then Joshua called the twelve men whom he had prepared of the children of Israel out of every tribe of man. And Joshua said unto them, Pass over before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of Jordan, and take you up every man of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel. That this may be a sign among you, that when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What mean ye by these stones? Then you shall answer them, that the waters of Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it passed over Jordan. The waters of Jordan were cut off, and these stones shall be for memorial unto the children of Israel forever. And the children of Israel did so as Joshua commanded, and took up twelve stones out of the midst of the Jordan, as the Lord spake unto Joshua, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, and carried them over with them into the place where they lodged, and laid them down there. And Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests which bear the Ark of the Covenant stood, and they are there unto this day. And then I'd like to read verses 20 through 24, same chapter. And those twelve stones which they took out of, the, out of Jordan did Joshua pitch in Gilgal. And he spake unto the children of Israel, saying, 
When your children shall ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What mean these stones? Then you shall let your children know, saying, Israel came over this Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of Jordan from before you until you were passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up from before us until we were gone over, that all the people of the earth might know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty that you might fear the Lord your God forever. Joshua here asked these men to go and gather up some stones and uh, place them uh, where he told them to, uh, to put them. And I can imagine, uh, it says stones here, and here in Georgia we don't usually think about real big rocks. We think about stones, gravel. But I can't imagine these men, when they're asked to do this, going down and picking up the smallest pebble they could find. Uh, I don't know if Joshua had told them what he was going to do with these stones or not before this. But anyway, I can just imagine these probably being big burly men that went down and picked up probably the biggest rock they could carry and uh, asked Joshua what to do with it. Well, it says there that he placed some uh, in the middle of the Jordan River where the uh, priest's feet stood, and it's there to this day. Um, I don't know. Is it possible that if we were to go and search the Jordan River, there's actually still a pile of rocks there somewhere in the middle of the river? You know what water does to uh, rocks and, and things after a while. They tend to wear away and move. <clears throat> and I don't know if, if the same is true there of the pile of rocks that were brought on to the uh, shore and, and put there by the river, if that's still there today or not. But again, I can imagine these guys carrying big rocks up and stacking them up as a memorial. They were to be there as a memorial to remind the people of what God had done for them. They had, uh, God had brought them through the Jordan River on dry land. Not just for them to be reminded of it, but whenever their children were to ask, say, Dad, what, what's this pile of rocks over? It kind of looks unique. But what's, what's with it? They were to then relay to their children uh, what God had done. And not just to their children, but other people around that happened to go by and see this unique pile of rocks there by the Jordan River. And they were to uh, tell them and give witness to God's mighty hand to the people around them as well. You know, today in our conservative Mennonite circles, uh, we also have landmarks. We call them rules, guidelines that we feel like are important. They are guidelines that are written by uh, man, but they're based on biblical principles. We feel like they're important because they give us uh, some direction. They give us some, uh, some boundaries. Um, and if, if you have observed conservative churches, whether it be Mennonite or others, that maybe at one time, there was, let's say at one time, there was quite a few of, of other congregations, no, uh, denominations that would look very similar to what our congregation does now, or at least what maybe our forefathers looked like. But today, there's no signs of uh, any difference between them and the people that are in the uh, general society. And we can see that happening in uh, many nominal uh, Christian churches and even in some uh, Mennonite churches as well. Things that at one time they held dear, things that at one time they held as important, and now they've thrown them away. Why are these things important? Why should we even look at this this morning? What's the purpose of the guidelines that we have? And how 
and I'm not necessarily going to answer all these questions, but I want us just to think about some of this as we're going through the message this morning. What can happen if these uh, guidelines, these uh, rules that we've come up with, uh, are moved or they're destroyed? After a while, you think about it in relation to what I said with the physical landmarks. Things start to get fuzzy. Our boundaries start to move, and we soon start to migrate uh, maybe the wrong way. Why do we need to be reminded of this? I need this reminder uh, because I tend to forget. How important are they for us to uphold and teach today? See, our children are observing. They see what we do. They observe our practices. They ask questions. And how do we answer them? And we're going to be looking this morning a good bit at our uh, statement of faith. And so if you have yours with you, uh, you're welcome to follow along or just listen to either one. But I was, as I was again uh, studying over this, I was reminded and thankful that whoever all was involved with putting this together didn't just put down their thoughts and leave it at that. They got biblical passages of Scripture to back up you know, their point. And I think that's real important because whenever we explain to our children or to someone else out here that's honestly seeking, uh, it's not just my idea. Take them to Scripture and take, you know, show them from Scripture. This is why we do what we do. This is an application of uh, a biblical principle. And I know we can't always, I sure can't remember all those passages off the top of our heads. But again, I believe it's important to take them to Scripture, not just say, well, this is just the way the church does it, and so that's the way we do. Um, that's not a good enough answer for, um, in my opinion, someone that's getting older um, in their teens. A child comes to us and asks us, or someone that's honestly seeking and wondering, why do we do some of the things we do? Take them to Scripture. <clears throat> so, uh, first of all, in your statement of faith, right at the very beginning, it says, in order to safeguard our people from the inroads of false doctrines which attack the word of God and threaten to undermine the foundation of our faith, we, members of South Atlantic Mennonite Conference, herewith make the following declaration regarding the fundamentals of the faith. And we go down through a number of things that, you know, fundamentals of our faith, God and his word, man and salvation, and so forth. And then we get back into the uh, rules and discipline part, where we're going to be looking at a little more this morning. There's a number of things here that uh, I'm just going to give a number as we go down through of, I'm going to call them landmarks, guidelines, that we uh, hold uh, as important. The first one is uh, baptism. And on page 2, <clears throat> uh, number 13, it says, We believe that those who repent and believe should be baptized with water, symbolizing the new birth, baptism with the Spirit, cleansing from sin, commitment to Christ, and separation from evil. It gives the references there, Matthew 18 and verse 19, which says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Also Acts 2.38 and Acts 10.44-48 and 1 Peter 3.21. Now there may be other references that could be used in some of these. But I also had to think about, there's some of these here um, guidelines, there's some of these things that we hold uh, as important that go clear back to Reformation time that some of our forefathers uh, stood and died for because they believed that this is the way the Bible taught. 
whenever the uh, Catholic Church at that time and other people said that's not important. This is, you know, this was the way it was. But no, they went to Scripture and uh, came up with these uh, these ideas. And then on page fourteen. And the first one here under baptism, and I'm not necessarily going to read everything that, uh, that we've got uh, verbatim. But baptism with water shall be administered by pouring, since it symbolizes the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2, 16 to 18, and verse 38, and also 10, 44 to 48. <clears throat> Those applicants shall be baptized who have given evidence of repentance from sin, of a profession of faith, of the new birth, and of the life of discipleship. In Christ, baptism is the answer of a good conscience toward God, 1 Peter 3.21. And applicants shall not be received unless they commit themselves to our doctrinal statement and rules and discipline. They shall present themselves in modesty and simplicity. No person shall be baptized without being received into church fellowship at the same time. <clears throat> so again, we have some reasons why uh, that we uh, accept someone, what they need to, the qualifications they need to meet to be able to uh, be part of, to be baptized, number one, and then to be part of our uh, local congregation. We don't believe in infant, ba in infant baptism. We say, state there that they have to give evidence of repentance from sin and, and so on, and a life of discipleship. So infant baptism is not something that we uh, feel is biblical. Neither is baptism just a rite of passage. Well, when you get to be a certain age, that you can be baptized and be part of the church. No, uh, they have to have a good answer, an answer of a good conscience toward God. So that's one, the first um, guideline, first, uh, yeah, guideline that I want to look at. The second one then is communion. Back on page 2, or 14, it says, We believe that the church should observe the communion of the Lord's Supper as a symbol of his broken body and shed blood in a common union of believers with Christ and one another. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 to 21, and 11, chapter 11, verses 22, or 23 through 26. And I'd just like to, uh, to read uh, some of that there from 1 Corinthians chapter, or 2 Corinthians, yeah, 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And again, there's times that people have questions as to why, why can't uh, I participate in your communion service or why don't we allow others to communi you know, commune with us uh, that profess Christianity. 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 30. We give here the basis for Observing communion. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge, well, that's through verse 30 there, I guess. 
So there we have uh, Paul telling the Corinthians a little bit how they were to conduct their communion service. <clears throat> In our rules and discipline, again, uh, page 14 and number two under communion says, the bread and the cup are emblems which symbolize the broken body and the shed blood of our Lord. Luke 22, 19, and 20. Those who partake of these emblems in communion, with, in communion witness to their union with Christ and demonstrate the fellowship of the brotherhood, the body of Christ, showing forth his death until he comes. Therefore, only those who are in harmony with the teachings of the scripture as interpreted by this conference shall partake of the Lord's table. And church officials are instructed not to offer the emblems to any member who is willfully disobedient to the church standards and give some references there. So there are some directions given. There are some safeguards given. We should uh, be counseled prior to communion regarding their state of peace within the brotherhood. And I think that's brought out there uh, in the passage I read in 1 Corinthians in verse 28. It says, but let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. So we examine our hearts and lives before we partake of communion. And there may be others that, uh, for instance, that are not uh, part of our congregation, that uh, if they are in same uh, faith and practice as we are at another uh, Mennonite congregation and um, in good standing, they are okay with, uh, we're okay with them uh, partaking with us. But if we're not careful and we just open it up to anybody that professes Christianity, there's a lot of people in this world that uh, profess Christianity. And their lives obviously do not follow the biblical uh, pattern that you know, God has set forth. They just profess Christianity. They maybe say, yeah, they know God, or they, yeah, there's a God, but they're not, li they're not living that way. So we, need, uh, we feel like we need to be careful as to um, who all maybe uh, partakes. That's why um, we have this practice of allowing others that are part of our congregation, larger congregations, to maybe participate. But again, whenever we observe communion, our children, and maybe even some others that are visiting sometimes, uh, observe us doing this. And our children maybe ask questions whenever they get home or on the way home. Dad, why did you do this? Why, did you, why is it like that? Um, they ask those questions. Again, we have that opportunity then to go to Scripture and explain to them why we practice uh, what we do. See, if we allow uh, anyone to participate, if we do it haphazardly, I believe those lines, those boundaries that are there become a little fuzzy and we soon uh, are not separated anymore as we should be. The third thing then is uh, feet washing. Again, on page 2, number 15, we believe that Christ taught both by example and by commandment that feet washing is a symbol of brotherhood, service, and humility, and should be observed literally, John 13, 3 through 17. And then again here on, uh, on page 15, number 3 says, Our Lord, by washing the feet of his disciples, left us an example to symbolize cleansing love and humility. Why do we do it? There's a, a good answer to symbolize cleansing love and humility. John 13, 1 through 13. In line with his command to wash one another's feet, John 13, 14 to 17, and to love one another as he loved us, John 13, 34 and 35. Feet washing shall be observed in connection with the communion service. And that's the way we generally practice. 
and we uh, do that usually twice a year. There's a lot of church groups that have at one time maybe observed this, but no longer do it. They feel like it's not relevant for our day. That was something that was back old uh, in the you know New Testament time only. It's not something that's important for us today. Well, I ask you, uh, are you like me and need reminded that I need to have humility, that I need to be able to be willing to serve my brother in even a small way by washing, stooping and washing his feet, something that may seem a little repulsive? I need that reminder. I'm not, I don't have it all together always. I need to be reminded to love and show him love. So again, a good reminder, a good reason why we need to keep that boundary, keep that uh, landmark in our lives. The fourth one then is greeting with the holy kiss. We believe that the holy kiss shall be practiced as a symbol of Christian love among the believers, brother with brother and sister with sister. And Romans 16 and verse 16 says, Salute one another with an holy kiss. 1 Peter 5, 14, Greet ye one another with a kiss of charity. Again, some scriptural uh, backing. <clears throat> and then on page 15, we have, The kiss of love is the holy symbol of brotherhood relationship within the family of God. John 1, 12, and Romans 8, 15 to 17. It shall be therefore observed upon receiving applicants into church fellowship at the time of washing one another's feet, and as often as prompted by the spirit of Christian love. And it gives several references there for the uh, use of and greeting of the holy kiss. Do we observe it as we ought? I have noticed among our conservative churches that it's something that is slowly but surely being dropped, not observed as often as it ought to. It used to be it, it didn't matter. Any time that the saints got together, uh, after church and before, there were people that exchanged the holy kiss as a sign of appreciation for each other and whatnot. I, I would just like to encourage us, don't be afraid to practice it. It's commanded in Scripture. There's things that people, I feel like today, are using as substitutes, as such as a hug. And I'm not opposed to giving someone a hug if it's appropriate. But... A hug is not the same as the Christian salutation. It's a direct instruction here from God's word, so let's observe it and uh, so that it's not lost. All right, the next one then, number five, is the veiling for the Christian woman. We believe that God has established unique roles of authority for man and women. Therefore, a man's head is to be uncovered while praying and prophesying, and the woman's head is to be veiled and her hair uncut, signifying their acceptance of God's order, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 through 16. And then we also have the veiling of the Christian woman's head symbolizes the principle of divine order and headship and her sanctification, 1 Corinthians 1.30 and uh, 1 Corinthians 11.2-16. through 16. Therefore, our sister shall wear a veiling which harmonizes with the teaching of Scripture and it has the approval of the church. Since the symbol which the veiling symbolizes is continuous in nature, it follows that as a general practice, our sister shall wear the veiling continuously as well. Regarding the hair, the Scripture teaches that a woman's hair, cut hair is a shame to her and her head 
and that her uncut hair is her glory. Sisters are therefore not to cut their hair. The hair should always be styled modestly so that it can be appropriately veiled. You know, our conference has uh, approved two styles of veilings, the fitted or cap style veiling, and also the uh, hanging veil. And again, if you know a little bit of your church history, um, and when I'm saying that, I'm more specifically talking about Mennonite church history, you will see how that if there were those churches in the past that observed that and now no longer do, what happened? It wasn't most of the time just an abrupt change from this to not wearing at all, but rather the veiling got smaller, it changed in its appearance, there were things added to it such as lace, and now soon the veiling is gone, and with that usually the hair gets cut. So uh, again, we have some directions for that because do we want the future generations to follow that? If so, why? Because of God's word. And in our position papers, we uh, speak to that just a little bit more, give some direction um, to how the veil is to be, the hanging veil specifically here is to be made. And I'm not sure why there's not, I didn't find anything anyway, why there's not a little bit of more specifics on the cap style veiling. But um, we give here a little bit of a description, a, a drawing as to how it's to be made. Concerning size, the veil should cover the top of the head at least as far forward as the ears and hang to the hairline or below in the neck. And sometimes I think as some uh, people maybe don't observe it that close, again, the veiling gets smaller and it's soon lost if we're not careful. So let's don't uh, chafe about the way it should, we've got it written. Let's observe it and let's embrace it. The sixth one then is marriage. We feel like marriage and, uh, is important. We believe that marriage is intended by God to be the union of one man and one woman for life and that the believer shall marry only in the Lord, Hebrews eleven four and Mark 10, 6 to 9. And I want to turn to that passage there in Mark. Mark chapter 10. Verses 6 through 9. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. So then they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. And then also we have marriage is the creation plan of God. Is Marriage in the creation plan of God is the lifelong union of one man and one woman. By the total giving and accepting of each other, they become one flesh, Genesis 2.24. This relationship symbolizes the union of Christ and the church, Ephesians 5.22 and 23. Therefore, Christians should marry only in the Lord and should select the marriage partner of like faith. It's unscriptural for a believer to marry a non-believer, 1 Corinthians 7.39 and 2 Corinthians 6.14. The marriage of Christians should be officiated by a duly appointed leader of the church. And then we also state that divorce and remarriage or marriage to a divorced person whose spouse is still living being adultery violates the symbolism of marriage and is both morally and scripturally wrong. It disqualifies one for church membership and a number of references given there. 
<clears throat> so we feel like marriage is something that is very important and the sacredness of it. Um, we're not okay with people just living together. We're not okay with looking for a spouse among unbelievers. We say only in the Lord for a reason because after a while those boundaries move. They shift and soon uh, there's no uh, difference between us and the world. The seventh one then is anointing with oil. <clears throat> we believe that the anointing with oil accompanied by the prayer of faith is honored by God in the healing of the sick in accordance to his will, James 5, 14 and 15. During his ministry, Jesus healed the sick, and when he sent forth his disciples, he commanded them to heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, cast out devils, Matthew 10, 8. The apostles carried out that command by the laying on of hands, anointing with oil and prayer. The scripture teaches that when any is sick, he may call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, James 5, 13 and 16. The oil symbolizes the grace of God to heal the body and through confession of sin to cleanse the soul. It is the prayer of faith that affects the healing, Mark 10, 52 and Mark 6, 13. And we state there that this ordinance shall be administered in harmony with the teaching of James upon request of those members who are ill. <clears throat> you know, this is an ordinance that we don't see practiced very often, and uh, maybe not even often enough, I might say. But I've had the opportunity to be a part of and be a witness to uh, several uh, anointing services in my lifetime. And it was, it was something that was... Um, that really blessed me. And to hear the testimony of maybe the sick one or the one uh, asking for anointing and also maybe the testimony of those that were in attendance. Um, again, I would just encourage us if um, it's not something that's got any magical powers or anything like that. Um, but I would just encourage us not to use that as a last resort. Uh, you know, Call for the elders of the church. That's, it's biblical. A couple other landmarks and guidelines that I want to look at that I think are important that we've taken a position on. Um, one is uh, church attendance. <clears throat> we say that members of the church are taught by the word of God to gather for mutual instruction, Hebrews 10.25, to the end that their witness to the gospel might be more effective in the world through personal and corporate testimony, 2 Corinthians 5.10-21, and that the bonds of brotherhood might be strengthened, Philippians 1.3-7. So we feel it's important to gather together just like we are here this morning. We're asked not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner some is, but exhorting one another so much the more as you see the day approaching. That's taken from Hebrews 10 and 25, verse 25. So church attendance is very important because if we start slipping in our church attendance, we start slipping in our other things in, uh, in relation to God, we soon gravitate the wrong direction. We soon look for other people maybe that agree with us or look for other people that we can associate with. We're, we're, that's the way God made us to be social beings and want to have fellowship with other individuals. So if we're not fellowshipping with God's people, we soon start to fellowship with the wrong crowd if we're not careful. Another one is the home. 
And I'm now on page 17, if you happen to be following along. We believe the home has a sacred trust to guide each generation of children into the ways of truth. What an awesome responsibility we as parents have. Married couples should regard parenthood as a divine endowment which should be planned with prayer and a deep sense of responsibility. Children should be wanted, loved, disciplined, and guided into an experience of salvation and an understanding of the truth of the Word of God. We're not here just raising our children to, to be the next generation to have jobs and, uh, and just live here in society, but rather we're bringing them up to uh, love and to serve God, hopefully. Every home should maintain a warm spiritual atmosphere by having time for daily Bible reading, meditation, singing, and prayer. So uh, our homes are something that is very important. And it should define who we as a people really are. They recognize that as uh, we are people of God, that our homes, our children, are something that is very important to us. Devotional life is the next one. Realizing the need of a positive devotional life for victorious living, we urge daily, by daily study of the Bible, meditation and prayer, and the reading of religious literature that brings faith and good character. See, we need that. Uh, we need that time with God. We need that victorious living, but in order to have victorious living, we have to have a relationship with the Lord. We feed ourselves physically, most of us every day and a couple times a day, to maintain our health, we also need our spiritual food in order to grow spiritually. The next one is education. <clears throat> Public school program incorporates basic philosophies which undermine Christian faith and discipleship. So there's a reason why we uh, feel like having our own Christian day school or teaching our children at home uh, on our own is important because the opposite Out here in the world, public school system undermines Christian faith and discipleship. Parents, therefore, should endeavor to have their children educated under sound Christian influence. Wherever feasible, we recommend the establishment of Christian day schools under the sponsorship of this conference. And so, again, we have our children there in a godly environment, surrounded by their uh, friends from our congregations, most of them, and even some from other congregations. Um, And it's been, I've been very blessed uh, myself growing up in that environment and then being able to see my children uh, grow up in that environment. I've been blessed by seeing some of the um, people that have come from our communities and been part of our Christian day school. And that goes back 40-some years ago. Uh, there's people you know, from our communities that have been part, brought their children here to our school. And still, maybe if you cross paths with them somewhere, they will speak, uh, you know, most of the time, I think, appreciatively, of their experience at school or Bible school and maybe now at our uh, children's club. We also feel like higher education, there's dangers in higher education. We're not opposed to it, but uh, we caution our members against influences that undermine our faith and discipleship. So there's reasons why we give some uh, real, um, maybe we, we push back a little bit on some higher education because what's the purpose of it? Why are you going for higher education? Not opposed to it. But if you're going for the wrong reasons, where is it going to take you? Who will you be influenced by? And I uh, could give some personal illustrations of that. I won't for sake of time. The next one then is our speech. 
Jesus said, by the words thou shalt be justified, and by the words thou shalt be condemned, Matthew 12, 37. Therefore, the Christian will be careful that his speech reflects true inner holiness, James 3, 1 to 14. Members shall refrain from profanity, from foolish, vulgar talk of any kind, from slandering, railing, murmuring, gossiping, and lying, all of which are displeasing to God. Several references there, Matthew 12, 36, Ephesians 4, 29. Ephesians 5, 4, and Colossians 4, 6. Does our speech set us apart from the world? I'm sure most of you have been in contact with people that have a filthy mouth, and you just don't want to, just it's repulsive. But do we use any kind of slang or language that's not upbuilding? Again, something I need uh, reminded of and we need to be careful in. What about our reading? Another boundary. Good literature is essential in the home and in personal life. All obscene, pornographic, or sadistic literature, whether newspapers, magazines, comics, or books, shall be carefully avoided. And some uh, principles for that there are found in Colossians 3, 2-8, and Philippians 4, and verse 8. Another uh, boundary is our music. How can we endorse or listen to music by people that are singing that are so-called Christian and yet their songs and their lives are, don't measure up. Music expresses what man believes and what is significant to him. From the redeemed heart arises a melody and message worthy to be sung to the glory of God. We encourage our members to develop appreciation for a cappella singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. In these times of abounding iniquity and great apostasy, the music of the world largely bears the mark of confusion. There's a difference. Again, in this sentence here, bears the mark of confusion, distortion, and rebellion against truth. Its focus is on the sensual appetites of man. Thus, we encourage our members to avoid listening to or patronizing rock, rap, jazz, country, and other ungodly music, as well as Christian, quote-unquote, music by those who do not support biblical standards of worship. Another one then is our stand on the use of the radio and the te uh, television. We believe that much of radio programming is dominated by the spirit of the world and exerts a damaging influence upon the spiritual life of the home. Therefore, we commend and encourage those who refrain from its ownership and use for the spiritual safeguard of their homes. We caution users against indiscriminate use of the radio for both secular and religious broadcasts. Therefore, we lay the responsibility upon users for control to maintain Christian standards and the Christian atmosphere in the home. And we ask then, goes on to say, we ask our members not to uh, use and have a television in our home because of the dangers that are there. I can almost see there'll be a day coming where maybe our grandchildren or great-grandchildren will even ask, what is a TV? What is a radio? Because now anymore you can find that and then some uh, quite a bit more on your uh, phones and your laptops, computers. <clears throat> Which leads me to the next one then, and uh, that is movies and videos. And uh, we're just going to read a couple paragraphs here. Developments in technology and the integration of media have made worldly entertainment readily available on our electronic devices in our homes. So it's so available. We can, we can access it at any time. 
The fact that such material can be viewed by means other than in theaters and on television does not diminish diminish its corrupting and defiling influence on those who watch it. The world's entertainment industry reflects the increasing sensual indulgence of our society, feeds the lust and desires of ungodly people, and fulfills the purposes of Satan, the god of this world. So is that really what we want to be a part of? I don't think so. As God's people, we don't want to be a part of that. So if we're not careful, that's where we can gravitate to. And just a couple things here from our um, position paper. In addition to accessing ungodly material online, spending excessive amounts of time on the internet, even pursuing good, worthwhile material, is a problem. The allure of another site or of one more link can easily lead to a neglect of higher priorities, such as time with family or personal time with God. Considering our calling to redeem the time, we cannot afford to aimlessly surf the web looking for entertainment. We must continually surrender our use of the Internet to Jesus Christ and be willing to close it down when it threatens to rob from our more important responsibilities. Social networking is one area of Internet usage particularly susceptible to abuse. The loss of privacy, the threat of predators, a culture of self-absorption and self-promotion, the com- competition with family time, and the substitution of long-distance relationships for local relationships are problems to guard against. How can we be intentional about protecting our families as well as our own hearts against the dangers inherent in using the Internet and other digital media? For one, we should take advantage of the safeguards that are readily available to us. Internet filters restrict access to inappropriate material and should be a standard feature on all devices which are connected to the web. Passwords on computers, blocks, and public settings are additional ways to limit access to sinful material. But we must also go beyond these external safeguards and commit ourselves wholly to Jesus, aligning our deepest desires with his will. In addition, we need the ongoing support and accountability of our brothers and sisters to thrive in the midst of these temptations. I think that's you know one of the real important things that we need to recognize that on our own uh, we're going to a lot of times fail. Take advantage of the safeguards that are uh, out there uh, for your um, electronic devices. Make yourself accountable to others. I've just been uh, amazed at the number of people that feel like accountability is not that important. You know, I'm accountable to God. I don't need accountability to another individual. That doesn't mean just because I have accountability with someone uh, that I can't go astray or I can't you know, do something and go somewhere I shouldn't. But are we intentional about keeping ourselves pure, keeping ourselves within the boundary that has been set up? Then the last one here is on our dress and appearance. In view of the fact that the Christian's body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, and in order to reflect the inner presence of Christ, it is important that appearance and conduct be consistent with the profession of godliness and simplicity. Why do we dress and dress modestly like we do? I just gave it there. So that it uh, professes godliness and simplicity. The scripture forbids the following of the fads and fashions of the general society. Clothing styles that accentuate the body and sex appeal are sinful, contrary to the biblical principle of clothing and body, and are to be conscientiously avoided. So again, there's reasons that we dress the way we do. Also, a couple more uh, paragraphs here I'd like to read because I think it's important for us to think about. 
For brethren, we, rec we recommend the regulation or plain coat and no neckties, an expression of nonconformity to the world. You know, why do you wear the plain coat? Uh, I don't have mine on this morning just because um, sharing this. Um, it's been basically my practice, right or wrong, that if I need to wear a jacket to go to the barn, go outside, then it's time to put a jacket on, my plain coat on to come to church. And I believe whenever, and this is again some of my own convictions, feelings, that if it's cool enough to wear a jacket and we're coming to church, that we ought to have our plain coat on and not substitute with something else because that's what we have uh, agreed to support. <clears throat> I was asked, and this has been a number of years ago, I was probably upper teens to 20, and I was uh, with one of my uncles that at one time was part of the conservative uh, Mennonite church and has since left that. And if you were to see him and his wife, you wouldn't be able to differentiate them from anyone else that you might see walking down the street. But he asked me, he says, why do you wear a plain coat? What answer would you give? Do you have a reason for it? Again, it made me think, and I'll just leave you ponder on that. For sisters, we recommend the modest cape dress as an expression of nonconformity and simplicity. Sisters shall be modestly dressed, seeking to express the qualities of a meek and quiet spirit, which in the sight of God is of great price. <clears throat> Again, are we ashamed of wearing, uh, ladies, the uh, plain cape dress? Are we ashamed of being modest? Yes, unfortunately, most of the time, to our shame as brethren, you stick out a little more than what we do. And I'm sure I know that we could do a little better and. Uh, supporting you. But why are jackets and sweaters worn as substitutes over capeless dresses? And I see this infiltrating our circles. Instead of a cape dress, they just wear a sweater or something or a jacket over top of it. What are we teaching our children by our actions? Are these uh, landmarks, are these guides, are these boundaries that I've talked about here this morning important to us? If we don't teach and practice them, they'll soon be lost. As it was back there in, in uh, Joshua's day, he wanted them to, uh, to be able to tell their children and the people around them why those pile of rocks were there. We won't know after a while where our boundaries are if we don't uh, support them now. We'll soon start looking and acting like the world around us. As God's people this morning, I want to encourage us and challenge us to accept the responsibility and to remove not the ancient landmarks which our fathers have set up. I'll call for a song and turn the time back to Brother Tim.